Let's pray together. Jesus, you have gathered us from many places today to be here, your body, your church. And as we hear the word proclaimed, would you open our ears to the good news, to the invitation you have for us today as we continue to walk with you? For any of my brothers and sisters today who might be distracted by concerns of others, illness, worries, work concerns, would you take that from them this moment so that they can listen with whole hearts? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to begin this morning with a bit of a confession. A few weeks ago, I heard an advertisement on the radio for a company that sold conflict-free diamonds and how they were quite a bit cheaper than regular, I guess, conflict diamonds. And so this was quite intriguing. And as I have learned that diamonds are a girl's best friend, I thought I would check out the website while I waited in the car line to pick up my kids from school. Well, unlike most jewelry websites where you just scroll through rings or necklaces, this one, the only way you could look at it was by building your own ring, which I happily participated in. I could choose my diamond, the cut and color I wanted, the type of gold and shape of the setting, it was beautiful and very exciting. And of course, they don't show you the price until the end when it's all made. But I have to tell you, I am so embarrassed by the price. And I had even chosen a pastor-sized diamond. <laughs> now, I'm not in the market for a ring. Uh, I have one that Justin gave me when he asked me to marry him a few years ago, and I am very happy with it. I was mostly just curious but since that moment, that stupid, beautiful ring has followed me around on the internet, like stuff does, you know, like, it's like a sparkly dog <laughs> popping up here and there and reminding me how much I like it, that, that maybe I want it, and that I definitely deserve it. Let's look at the word now. So our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Philippians. This is a letter of friendship written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi while Paul was under house arrest in Rome about 61 AD. Now at this time, Philippi was a city of about 10,000, maybe similar to Hinsdale in size? Yeah. Um, and we should know some things about the city of Philippi. First, in 42 BCE, about 100 years before this letter was written, two major battles had been fought nearby between Cassius and Brutus, remember those from Julius Caesar, and the victors, Octavian and Mark Antony. And Octavian, maybe you've never heard of him, but you might recognize his name from Luke's Gospel, Caesar Augustus. That's his whole long name. He honored the city by making it a Roman military colony. And so the city is full of discharged veterans from this and another war. It's a city full of loyal patriots and their children with deep, deep loyalty to Caesar Augustus. In fact, 
Archaeologists have found an altar to Augustus there in ancient Philippi. It says, Caesar Augustus, son of God. That's what he was called. They worshipped him. So there is also a Christian church in Philippi, a small house church. You can read how it was founded in Acts 16. This is the time Paul is on his second missionary journey. He travels to Philippi. Paul's usual practice is to go to the Jewish synagogue in the town and proclaim the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ there. But Philippi is so secular, there is no Jewish synagogue, so he goes outside the gates of the city and preaches to the women who have gathered there to pray. One of the women he meets is Lydia. Maybe you remember that. And she responds to the gospel of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And she and her whole household are baptized. Now, we don't know how long Paul stayed in Philippi, but it was long enough to establish a house church and also develop a close relationship, a close friendship with people in the church. And so those, though this is a letter of friendship, Paul doesn't just write to them to butter them up and make them feel good about themselves. Paul also writes to offer some correction and guidance. And one of the first things he corrects is how the church, how members of the church are behaving. First, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he starts to flesh, what, flesh out what this might look like. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of that text. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Now, I think that if the Philippians were already doing this, Paul probably would not have instructed them in it. You know what I mean? I mean, later in the letter, Paul gets pretty specific, saying, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These are two women who are arguing. Both of them have to stop thinking about themselves. Both of them have to be of the same mind as the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, it's not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about how others see you. Stop thinking about yourselves and start thinking about others. It's not about you, friends. Now, why might the Philippians have thought it was all about them? They've learned the story of the gospel, right? But I think this has a lot to do with, with where they're living, with who their leaders and gods were. These weren't people who didn't do stuff out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. I mean, we're talking about people who idolize Alexander the Great, the Emperor Caesar Augustus. In Philippi, there is also a temple to the Greek god Dionysus. Now this guy, it's really hard to find a picture of Dionysus, appropriate to show in church, by the way. So this guy, the one on the right, my right, um, is all about unrestrained consumption, booze, sex, complete freedom from self-restraint and care for others. This is in the air in Philippi. It's in the culture. It's what surrounds people. So no wonder they need Paul's instructions. 
The church has been born into this water, this water of selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's modeled in their military leaders. It's in the character of the gods they worship. No wonder they're acting like this. It's how they have been trained. It's gotten under their skin and it's formed them. Maybe we'd say it has deformed them. And this is why Paul is writing. Because he is concerned about how the sin of the world has deformed them against the path of Jesus. You know what I think? I think that this might be how we have been trained to. I don't mean to shock you. There is not a temple up the road to Dionysus. But we get these messages, you know? Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Because I'm worth it. It's your journey. The power of she. Just do it. It's estimated that we see this kind of stuff 5,000 times a day. That includes brands and advertising images. That's the number of ads people were exposed to in 2007. I think it's probably more now. And these messages, the ones that say, you deserve it, the ones that put you in the center of it all, they form us. They deform us. And we're all born into this water, this deformation of human identity into people whose primary vocation is that of consumer. This has been going on for quite a while. In 1927, an American journalist wrote, a change has come over our democracy. It's called consumption. The American citizen's first importance to his country is no longer that of citizen, but that of consumer. And then a year later, President Herbert Hoover addressed advertising executives saying, you have taken over the job of creating desire and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines, machines that have become the key to economic progress. But this is the problem. There is no end to consumption. It goes on and on and on as we accept and are formed by the identity of no longer of citizens, no longer of God image bearers, but as consumers who desire, who desire more and more. And even when one is just curious about a ring, it follows us around, reinstating the possibility of beauty and prestige. Have it all. Just do it making us into little gods who can have whatever we want with a one-click order from Amazon. And here's the rub. This has not only crept into our day-to-day -day lives, this constant bombardment with advertisements and images that have caused psychologically diagnosed disorders, including hoarding disorder and compulsive buying, but it has also crept into the church. Church shopping is a phrase we frequently use, and not ironically. Looking for a church that meets our needs, that caters to our preferences, just like we order a Starbucks exactly the way we want it. 
sense that we do this. All of those thousands of advertisements and images of perfection that we see every day that affect the minds of our children, that affect our own minds, that tell us we want it all and we can have it all. They've deformed us. They've treated us like consumers and we have accepted that vocation. Except the church is not a thing to be consumed. The church is not a thing to be consumed. We are not consumers here. The church is not an object to desire, to have it your way. It's not an object. It's an organism. And the church, frankly, is not yours. It's not mine. It's not Pastor Lars. It's not the council. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. We are the church, but we are not our own. We belong in life and in death to Jesus Christ. And God calls us, just like Paul called the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how do we do this? How do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Paul is pretty clear about it. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul goes from his instruction right into this hymn slash poem. If you're following along with your Bible, you might notice that it looks like it's written like a poem, right? Now, there is a lot of debate about if someone else wrote this hymn poem or if Paul wrote it. That doesn't really matter that much to our purposes today. What we know is this. This hymn tells us about Jesus. It shows us Jesus' attitude so that we can copy it. Have the same mindset. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. What's his attitude, right? First of all, Paul is very clear. Jesus is God. This is key. This is really important. It's one of the primary texts in scripture that teach us about the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is fully God in nature. But, says Paul, he doesn't let this go to his head. He doesn't use this power to his own advantage. He makes himself nothing. He empties himself. Now, this is a metaphor. It doesn't, it means that he was like a king who got off from his throne, took off his robe and crown, and put on the clothes of a servant. He didn't get rid of the divine inside him, though. He continues to be God. He didn't go around dressed as a servant while still acting like he was a king, no. He lived the life as a humble servant. And being found in human form, again, Jesus is human, too. He's human, fully, He's God fully, and he demonstrates to us ultimate humility by dying. But not just dying in his sleep, like probably many of us hope will happen to us one day, no. By dying the humiliating and shameful death on the cross. Now, crosses are ubiquitous now. We see them everywhere, and we hardly think of what they actually mean. We think, oh, that means that person's a Christian, or that is a Christian church, right? But here, Paul isn't talking about that. 
He's reminding the Roman readers of Philippi that the God they worship, Jesus the Lord, was crucified, tortured, shamefully, nailed to a cross, naked, where he died a slow, painful death as he attempted to breathe, just as thousands of others crucified in the military dictatorship of Rome, even perhaps by some of the citizens and church members of Philippi. Have the same mindset as him, the naked God, man, dying king, suffering, suffocating on the cross, Paul says. This is quite different from Caesar Augustus, from Dionysus, the god of pleasure and wine. And just as Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, reminding them to have the same attitude as Jesus, the Holy Spirit invites us to have the same attitude as Jesus, to reject the identity as consumers and to start conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, having the same attitude as Jesus. This includes doing nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Becoming like Jesus, having a Jesus attitude. This, Paul says, this is your leader. This is the one we follow, not the local or national military leader like Caesar Augustus, not the freedom-loving, binge-drinking, God Dionysus, Jesus. This is your God. I think this is a pretty hard call. You know that. What, is it, what does it look like in the 21st century in Hensdale, practically, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? to have the same mindset as Christ. What does that look like? Well, I want to offer a, an example, a story that we could consider. Long ago and far away, but really not that different contextually from us. In the late 18th and early 19th century, there was an area in southwest London that was very fashionable. It was called the Clapham Commons. It was home to Holy Trinity Church, a congregation of very wealthy evangelical Anglicans. They were constantly praying together and seeking God's will. Now, 18th century England was very secular. People were skeptical toward the gospel and the social implications of it. But nevertheless, members of the Clapham group worked together in opposing the vicious slave trade in Africa. And in 1807, the British Parliament passed the act which made the slave trade illegal, and it was because of the work of members of this church. But the Clapham group continued to campaign for Britain to free the slaves that had already and were being exploited in the Caribbean plantations. And so 26 years later, slavery in the British Empire ended, again because of the church's work. In addition to this, the Clapham group focused on missions work, founding the Church Missionary Society for Africa and the East, which was one of the most prolific sending agencies of the 19th century, meaning they sent a ton of missionaries out, right, and funded them. They harnessed their influence and power, not for their selfish ambition, but for the good of others. This was not without cost, without humbling themselves. Though this church were of aristocratic background and many of them held positions of power and influence, the Clapham group and involvement in abolition causes brought significant social negative stigma. Their peers, the English ruling class, viewed them as radical and dangerous, similar to the French revolutionaries of the day. 
but we remember them. Maybe you've never heard of the Clapham Group, but I bet many of you have heard of William Wilberforce, one of their members. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Lent starts this Wednesday, it's Ash Wednesday. That's the day we're reminded that we're made of dust and will return to dust. That one day, unless Jesus first returns, come Lord Jesus, we will die. And our identity as consumers will not matter then. It won't matter what we owned or whether or not we had it our way. It won't matter how beautiful we were or what kind of car we drove or what our house looked like. What will matter is if we lived a life worthy of the gospel, if we had the same mindset of humility as Jesus demonstrated. It will matter if we participated with the spirit in the work God is actively doing in our midst. In Philippians chapter two, a little bit further on in verse 13, Paul writes, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God empowers this work. This is the work God is doing, empowering us to will and do his work, empowering us in our partnership with the Hindustani Covenant Church to help provide spiritual and education to children halfway across the world. This is the same God who influences English aristocrats to care about the slave trade going on. The Clapham group, they were wealthy, but that's not why we remember them. We remember them because they lived lives worthy of the gospel, and that is our call too. So as we close today, let's read these words again together, the first half of the Christ hymn. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Amen.